0: My guest today is the man with no name. He goes by Nanashi, which is Japanese for no name. And I met him last March in Chiang Mai, Thailand. I came across him through a friend of mine, Cactus Josh, who is a friend of mine from Maui in California. And he happened to be in Thailand at the same time I was. So we met up. And one morning he said, Hey, I want to go meet this guy from this cactus forum that I'm on, on Facebook. I think he's some Japanese guy. I've never met him before. So we go down to this cafe and see this guy and he's not Japanese. After all, he's an American born in Hawaii. And he turned out to be a really interesting and somewhat mysterious fellow. He goes by an alias. Nanashi, um, because of the nature of the work that he does, he grows and exports psychedelic plants, and he's had his own garden of psychedelic plants in Thailand for the last 15 years. Uh, In this episode, we talk about the plant side of plant medicine. I generally talk more about the medicine side, the experience, Um, and the plant side is something that I want to know more about but it's it's definitely not my realm of knowledge necessarily but that's what nanashi does he's an ethnobotanist and if you don't know what that is that's okay he'll explain it in the beginning of the episode and yeah we talk about some common plants that other psychonauts might know about like ayahuasca uh, peyote also iboga and datura. Um, and just share some stories of personal experiences, both his and mine. And at the end of the episode, we just end up talking about life and reflecting upon the ups and downs and insights brought about by the journey of self-refinement. So I hope you enjoy the show. Here is Nanashi. Welcome back to Chronicles of a Psychonaut. Uh, my guest today is Nanashi, and I, I just met him yesterday. He's a fascinating man. I'm here in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and Nanashi is an ethnobotanist. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. So let's start by telling people what is an ethnobotanist.
1: An ethnobotanist is someone that Studies the relationships between people and the plants that they live with, mm-hmm. uh, medicinal practices, uh, general spiritual ideas of cultures, and the plants that they use to represent those ideas.
0: Okay. So, um, what are what are some of the plants that you work with and study? Uh, currently, my study areas with the um
1: tabernay montana genus uh
0: and mostly the african populations of the tabernay
1: montana genus
0: so uh, what would that what would the common person know those plants as um i'm unsure if I, i
1: don't think most uh I don't think most people are very familiar with the Tabernanthe Montana. Uh, the closest thing that they would be familiar with would be the uh, Tabernanthe iboga.
0: Iboga. Yeah. Okay. So iboga from Africa. That's yeah. a it's a root, right? And it's um, it's um. Well, it's psychedelic. I guess you would say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the so this is um. How do you say it? Taber. Taber Montana. Taber Montana. Yeah. So it's a, it's an African plant that has, um, uh, psychologi- or uh, psychedelic properties.
1: Uh, some of them, <coughs> some of them have psychedelic properties. Some of them have other, very interesting medicinal properties. Uh, and and Taber Montana. They they run the gambit from small shrubs to large trees, okay. <coughs> and then you can find them all over the world: uh, S- Asia, Southeast Asia, Africa, South America. Um, and what I'm concentrating now on is just the African ones that have very
0: little research associated with them. Yeah. Okay. I've never, definitely, never heard of that. I mean, I I've heard of iboga but I actually know very little about iboga as well. Um, iboga has become so popular lately that
1: uh, the harvesting and use of iboga for like the treatment of addiction is having a really negative impact on the on the native lands where these grow in Cameroon and Ghana. Mm-hmm. And you can see, because it grows into a large tree, and you'll see lots of these large trees are just being felled, and all the roots are being stripped, and the root bark's being stripped to be used for addiction treatments in Europe and Mexico and everywhere else and while this is a great thing I think that the need for it now is destroying the populations of plants mm-hmm. And with the Tabernay Montanas, especially from the African ones, there's a lot of very similar alkaloids that can be used for the same purpose, mm-hmm. uh, but the understanding of the alkaloids Isn't quite common yet.
0: hmm Uh, You know, I'm just realizing that we've got this air conditioning on. Could we turn that off? Just hit the red switch. This one? Yeah. Yes. That'll be better. Okay, so have you experienced this plant? Have you taken it? Aboga? Tabernay, Montana. Well, there's a...
1: uh, Tabernay, Montana is just the uh, the overall name of several plants, so... um, There's like Tabernay Montana Elegans, which is known as the toad tree in Africa, Mm -hmm. because the the bark of the tree looks like one of the gnarly toads that they have there. Mm And uh, one of the new ones that I'm dealing with right now is a shrub called uh, Tabernay Montana Coriombosa, which contains something extremely similar to ibogaine. And when this chemical is extracted, you can convert it directly to ibogaine really easily.
0: And Ibo- ibogine is the name of an alkaloid, it's just the, like mescaline is the name of an alkaloid?
1: Ibogine is the uh, the alkaloid inside of Tabernanthi aboga uh-huh. that is used to treat the addiction. Okay. And uh, there, there's several other plants in Africa that contain uh, similar alkaloids. And so I'm firmly of the opinion that once more knowledge is out, then the populations of a boga itself won't be so drastically reduced in the name of addiction treatment, and that there's a more sustainable way to do things without just destroying a single genus of plant.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And can those plants be cultivated? Um, you know, uh, can they be grown and cultivated outside of the wild easily? Absolutely.
1: Uh, the one, Taber, name Montana Corymbosa is one of the largest cultivated decorative shrubs in Southeast Asia right now.
2: Oh, okay. And so
1: when someone goes to buy an aboga plant or an aboga seed, the the, the cost can be expensive, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they have to wait years and years and years for the trees to grow before they can harvest the root bark so that they can get the chemicals that are needed to treat addiction. With the Tabernay Montana Corium of that's in cultivation they average about a dollar 50 a piece here mm-hmm. for the whole plant already large enough to be harvested and used for medicine so the cost and the the, the environmental impact of using this plant or a multitude of the plants with the ab- abogaline alkaloids in them is, is is a far better way to go
0: yeah yeah and i know from our talk yesterday that you you cultivate a lot of plants and you have some uh, plots of land where you grow medicinal plants. Yeah. Um, and I assume you have some of those that you're, uh, you, you're working with several different oh, species yeah. and varieties. And So
1: I couldn't even number the amount of plants and species that I have now.
2: Yeah. Uh,
0: How long have you been building your gardens and collection? These two currently about 10 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, let's just give people kind of an overview too of some um, some of the other areas of interest in plants. I know you have an interest in cactus. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you wouldn't mind, just like uh, you know, n- name off some of the ones that people would know, and maybe some that they wouldn't know. Uh, lots of uh, different varieties of
1: San Pedro. Uh, All of the varieties of peyote Mm -hmm. and uh, some very lesser known just decorative varieties that I'm kind of uh, stuck on looking at. Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, Tefro cactus is one of my favorites it's not really medicinally useful or anything like that but it's really nice to look at. Mm -hmm. And most of the most of the laffa the peyote cactus, they're non-active cactuses as well. They've got. Uh, there's only one, one really, that has any active mescaline content in it, and the rest of them are all just decorative and
0: mm-hmm. collector's items. And, mm-hmm. and also ayahuasca. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you said, how old is your vine? 15 years? I've got some
1: that are 15, some that are 10, some that are 5.
0: Mm-hmm. And how, how big around... Uh, the base is a 15-year-old vine.
1: Uh, it's almost as big as my waist, so... Uh, 34, 36 inches or so.
0: Mm-hmm. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember in Hawaii, uh, it just seems to... Gr- must grow much better out here compared to Hawaii. Well, where I live in southern Thailand, it's, it's
1: true tropics, so, you know, we never have a cold season we never have a dormant season and our monsoon is almost a third of the year yeah and we get four straight months of
0: rain yeah so it really thrives on that that's m- much closer to its natural environment of uh, yeah. the amazon yeah yeah and you also grow chakruna which is the most commonly um uh, used plant to pair with ayahuasca dmt containing plant yeah so you have some chakruna plants and, oh, yeah. uh, I know you're looking for Brugmansia, also known as toe in the Amazon or it's, is Brugmansia detura or not quite? And detura is more of
1: a, a, a Brugmansia is a tree. Mm-hmm. And deturas are normally, uh, I want to say perennial flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of different types of detouras, but there's only three types of brugmansia, mm-hmm. and it, uh, the only real difference between them is the size that they grow, and uh, the tropane alkaloid concentrations. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's a really beautiful plant. Uh, a lot of people have it as a decorative plant in their front yards. Uh, it's extremely poisonous. It's uh, it, It's called. It's been called the trumpet flower. Um, Belladonna is another name. The Devil's Trumpet. It's got a lot of. It's got a lot of names. It's got a lot of.
1: It's got a bad rap, as far as I'm concerned.
0: <laughs> sure, sure. Well, for good reason, I think, because you know, many people uh, either take it accidentally and poison themselves, and it's psychedelic. It's highly, it's highly uh, psychotropic, and sometimes kids eat eat part of it and yeah, have a terrible time, or sometimes people take it intentionally, but um, don't know what they're doing and have a terrible time.
1: (coughs) The two things I know of that have really given it a bad rap is either, like you said, uh, accidental ingestion or um, the zombie dust usage down in South America.
0: Oh, uh, spicolamine, is that how you say it? Scopolamine. Scopolamine, right. It's one of the... Tropine alkaloids. It's active in the seeds. Talk about that a little, in case people don't know.
1: What what'll, what'll happen is these guys will take and they'll powder the seeds up, and and they'll find a way for you to ingest it. Put it in your drink. Um,
0: they could even just blow it at your yeah, face. Yeah, I've,
1: I've heard they can blow it in your face, and and with some varieties and things like that. And what'll happen is it. It's It's almost like a hypnosis. So you become extremely success, susceptible to suggestion
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you'll know that, and like this guy tells you, you know, go to the ATM and empty your bank account and you'll know that it's wrong. You'll know that you shouldn't do this, but you still go and you do this anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And it's, um, I, I've heard of people like you don't really remember what happened, um, but in. But in rare cases, it can kill people. Like if you if you get too much of it, um, yeah, it's poisonous and you can die. I've heard of this. I don't. I don't know if
1: I've never actually read an actual report, like uh, a coroner's report, or even a paper that cites death from it. But I've 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 heard about this for a long time. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, honestly, I've never really searched into finding these papers or coroner's reports either.
0: Yeah, sure, but.
1: I would figure at some point in time through my research, I
0: would have at least run across one. Mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Vice did a uh, short documentary piece on it, which was really good. Um, I was recommend recommended to see that. Vice I, I is
1: okay it. sometimes, but you know, they kind of have the lean towards sensationalism of things. Yeah.
0: Yeah, sure. They're a, they're a media company, yeah. you know, they like to, uh, they like to sell their product for sure. But, um, but, Datura and Brugmansia, it is a really beautiful plant. And um, I have, I've personally ingested it um, as part of an ayahuasca brew made properly. And it's in the Amazon, the uh, the medicine people tradition. Um, they consider it to be an advanced and dangerous plant. Uh, yeah. according to my friend who has worked down there I, extensively.
1: I would agree that um, one would have to have a fairly advanced mind to um, gain the benefits that there are to be gained from the plant.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and from my personal experience, it's quite its quite a lot to, to uh, cope with, the experience. Um, and the proper way to... Uh, prepare it at least with ayahuasca as far as I understand is you only use a very small amount and a, a very small amount goes a long way tiny 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 very tiny um and even with that tiny amount it's uh quite powerful so once every
1: year or two I will uh and not with Rick Manzi, but with my have a nice cup of tea made from uh, the leaf for the deterra flower, depending on what I'm looking for that year. Mm-hmm. And even in that way, it's, it's an exceedingly tiny amount. Mm-hmm. And I really do think it's an important thing. You know, most people, when they view plant medicine or plant teachers and things like that, they only think of trying to see the nice light side and all the good stuff and it should all be fairies and rainbows and unicorns. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really irresponsible way to go about all of it because if you spend all day looking at the light, you're missing half the picture.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the Detour experience definitely brings forth the the darker side. Oh, Um, it'll bring all the
1: dark in you right out. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And it's scary. It can be. But it is important, I agree, I agree. It should be scary. Yeah, sure. And and it's not something that
1: one should desire to do very often.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, and I'll I'll just say, I don't recommend anybody go and just try to tour. I think it's, if you want to try try it, uh, definitely find somebody who knows exactly what they're doing. Oh, yeah, when I say that I I have my tea once
1: every year or two, it's... uh, it's not that I go out and pick uh, leaves or flowers from wild plants. Yeah. And and just to say so, um, never, ever, ever eat the seeds. It's way too strong. Yeah. And normally the the chemical contents inside, the alkaloid contents inside, will vary yeah, hugely. So, like, if you have a plant and in the rainy season and you eat a few seeds, they're not really that strong. But in the hot season, you know, one or two seeds might be way too much. Mm-hmm. So, and the plants that I, I, that I pick off of for my teas, you know, I've been growing these same plants for about 10 years. I have a real good understanding of alkaloid concentrations inside of them. Mm-hmm. So it's easy for me to understand, you know, a gram and a half of this flower is going to be just fine or almost way too much.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's definitely not something to play with. I mean, of all, of all the plants that I, I've ingested, I, it's, it's m- most intense and probably most dangerous.
1: Well, I see younger generation on Facebook now and you'll see pictures pop up in some of the groups. Oh, I found this deterred today. How do I eat the seeds or I'm going to smoke the flowers or something like that. And all I can think is, man, this guy's really going to go harm himself because that's not healthy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
0: that, no, it's not the way to go about it. Yeah. And um, in, in my uh, encounter with it, I had the good fortune of being with somebody who has been on the ayahuasca path for 20 years and studied very extensively in the Amazon and knows exactly what he's doing yeah. and has personally uh, ingested that many times. And But even him, you know, he, it's not something that he does often or even likes to do. It's just, it really goes a lot deeper. And um, he offered me the opportunity to uh, just drink a little bit of that ayahuasca medicine and um have the experience and well, most
1: people that I run across you know really try to do you know the ayahuasca and things like that and in, in some way to further their own development
2: mm-hmm.
1: and like i said if you, you can't further your own development without dealing with the darkness within
2: mm-hmm.
1: and ayahuasca uh most of the tryptamine alkaloids and things like that they don't bring out the inner demons mm-hmm. i mean yeah if the inner demons are enormous and you know, this stuff that you refuse to deal with then it's going to come out somehow, but not like it does with the
0: uh the tropine alkaloids <laughs> mm-hmm. so uh, tryptamine alkaloids would be like d m t or uh psilocybin right is a uh, tryptamine
1: uh it's a phenethylamine okay so the tryptamines are uh, indole based alkaloids and it's yeah it's like dmt uh, lsd lsa okay and these this variety of stuff okay and they're all based off of uh a a tryptamine skeletal structure and that's based off of a tryptophan skeletal structure Mm -hmm. so it's really just uh modified turkey chemicals (laughs) right right
0: (laughs) a very simple uh molecule actually i mean it, I, d- I don't know anything about organic chemistry or anything like that but just it, it, to my it, eye it's it's it, it doesn't have a lot of uh chains and all kinds of stuff it's no just like, it,
1: in design and construction especially when like you'll draw out the molecular structure it's really easy it's really simple but the construction of them is far more difficult than most people would imagine
0: mm-hmm. sure so what was the other class that you just mentioned as opposed to tryptamines uh, the phenethylamines phenethylamines yeah okay so what's a, what are some examples of that
1: uh salis and psilocybin mescaline uh, and, uh for anybody to get a really good look at what they are um they should read
0: pical pical yeah what's that uh phenethylamines
1: I have known and loved written by uh Sasha Shulgin
0: okay and uh what what does that book go into
1: so for most that don't know um, uh, picol and it's corresponding to tryptamines I've known and loved are almost they're half basic textbooks on molecular structure and dosage mm-hmm. for hundreds of different substances and the f- that's the second half of the book is the textbook. The first half of the book is just uh experience reports and stories written by the author and I mean this guy is really is the progenitor. He was the guy that basically uh made M
0: mm-hmm. D Wow, he made it. He synthesized it. Interesting. Like this is Sasha was He's the OG psychonaut.
1: He's the guy, man. Yeah. Or no, he was the guy. Yeah. And um uh his wife, whose name escapes me at the moment, sadly. Um, she's the one that brought the, uh, the psychotherapy work into it. Okay. Uh, so she, would, uh, she's uh, their scale is basically how we all quantify the measurement of our experiences. Hmm. Now it's, it's so, it's become so innocuous that nobody even knows that these are the two that invented the modern method of quantification of experience
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> what's that scale
1: um oh, i wish i'd brought my book with me so they'll have you know it's basically a one to ten scale of how strong the experience was and and um the usability of the experience and then she'll normally give some qua- uh give a statement on you know this this substance would be good for this type of treatment or that type of treatment and, and this type of person. And they did years and years and years and years of this work,
0: decades of this work, uh, just outside of Berkeley. Hmm. And um, so obviously the you're, you're saying this has had a huge impact on the way that we think about. Uh, it's had a huge impact on the entire psychedelic community as a whole. Mm.
1: Um, Sasha's lab he was he had DEA licensing and federal licensing to produce just about any substance in the world mm-hmm. um,
0: what era was this 50s 60s something oh
1: until just recently I mean Sasha died just a few years ago and he worked pretty much up until the day he died mm-hmm. and after when as he got older he'd have some assistants come in and they would work with him mm-hmm. and um one of the people that worked with him is, is starting to make a name for himself. Uh, you know, Hamilton from Hamilton's Pharmacopia.
0: Yeah, I'm not really a big fan of Hamilton, but...
1: I think he brings a, a different perspective that's valuable,
0: whether mm-hmm. I agree with him or not. Sure. Sure. He's bringing exposure to... Um, yeah, I mean, I guess what I my introduction to hamilton was a uh, a piece that he did on combo uh what's the the uh latin name for that frog philo, de, <clears throat> philo medusa by color. yes exactly <laughs> uh i had never heard of combo before and i saw a vice piece that he did and um i'll say this he's that was a long time ago he's matured a lot since then but he was kind of like a skinny emo kid in 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 skinny jeans just uh wandering through the amazon trying to get as messed up as he could on whatever and uh so i guess i got an initial sour taste for him but you think he's doing doing better now i know he's got his own thing on vice uh hamilton's pharmacopoeia um
1: I have no opinion whether he's he's doing good or not, but like you said, he is um, shedding light on a lot of things. Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, I never... I I maybe eventually would have heard about Combo, but I heard about it because he did a piece. And and although I didn't necessarily feel like he was the most respectful, it uh, turned me on to the idea of it, and I started researching it on my own. And
1: personally, I'm not into any animal, animal chemicals. Yeah. I mean, really. I mean, if I were, I would be far more interested in harvesting adrenochrome from humans.
0: (laughs) Fear and loathing in Las Vegas style. Yeah.
1: You know, just, just to see.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Is that a real thing? Apparently. Oh, but it's not from, uh, uh, the
1: brain. Like everyone thinks it is. It's a, portion of an organ above the kidney
0: the adrenal gland yeah okay makes sense
1: yeah uh, so i mean if i was in the chinese black market harvesting kidneys and stuff you know yeah <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh so what was that third category of uh alkaloids that you said brings out the kind of the darker side Tropine alkaloids Tropines. okay
1: so are the two common and most
0: easily accessible and it's uh,
1: the general constituents of Detura and Brugmansia.
0: Okay. And um, are, are those basically the only well-known tropenes? Yeah. Or are there some other? No, there's not anything that's really well known
2: amongst
1: a, the population of anybody really. Yeah. And um, even myself, I've got such a, shallow understanding of any other tropian alkaloids that i'm not even a good person to talk to about the others (laughs)
0: okay sure so let me let me ask you how did you get into all of this um i mean obviously you have a huge passion and a huge knowledge base about this you've been working at it for a long time what what got you on this path lsd yeah. One experience. Uh, was there a, uh, uh, like a big, cracking open moment or a a, fa- a period of time?
1: When I was a kid, I was at a friend of mine's house and we were playing, and uh, his dad had a lot of LSD around, and uh, we had inadvertently ingested some.
0: How old were you? Almost twelve. Mm-hmm. We thought it was candy. Oh it no! It was candy, but like a sugar cube or uh Uh, gel tabs gel tabs okay (laughs) so how much lsd do you think you ingested
1: ah it was just a few hits i'm sure yeah i mean mean, his dad was really he didn't do the normal you know dad thing come in and figure out that we eaten some of his lsd and then kind of freak out or anything like that he's was really calm He was like oh so the boys had some of my acid and took us and sat us down and explained to us as best he could we were really high by this point and mm-hmm. showed us some fun games and cool music to listen to and till we came down mm-hmm. And then he gave us an explanation of what it was and told us we could never tell anybody or it would destroy his life mm-hmm now it was really backwards to me I was like how could something that's so super fun and so awesome destroy your life if I tell other people about it yeah and then he explained to me why mm-hmm and I, I, even to this day, I still don't understand, you know, the legal ramifications of all of these things.
0: Right. So uh, were you frightened before he explained it to you? Or just Not so at all. Yeah. Not well,
1: at all. I was just, I thought it was the coolest thing ever.
0: <laughs> Did you know what was happening? I mean, just all of a sudden
1: you're, you I start. D- I didn't know why or anything else like that at first. Nothing. And I, I don't know. Neither my friend nor I really seem to have a problem with, you know, it was like, shit, you start looking at your hand and you see the tracers. We didn't even think about why. We were just like, wow, that's really cool.
0: Huh, <laughs> yeah. So how did that, uh, how did LSD open you up to, to this world? Uh, well, like most other
1: teenagers, you know, I went around for years, just, you know, getting high and having fun. Mm-hmm oh let's go to a dead show i need some massive listen to some great music and you know and slowly gradually i just started to notice that there's a bit more to it than just going and having fun mm-hmm. and then i started to read a lot mm-hmm. who yeah. did you read everything i could at that time
0: uh let's see Probably some Huxley
1: Jonathan Ott Had a real Real effect mm-hmm. And uh, Food of the Gods Had a real effect
0: mm. Terence McKenna Yeah
1: mm-hmm. And Yeah that's, that's when I really Started to look Into things And then I think I was maybe 16 And When I started To hear about You know The ideas about Falaris grass And it's got DMT And then ayahuasca and stuff like that and I became really interested in that
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, it was a friend of mine or something I read somewhere I don't even remember where it was but they're talking about uh, oh you know if you've got this kind of grass in your yard if you just plant your whole yard of it you could just mow your yard and have all this drug and I was like oh wow cool you know I could just mow my yard and get high and then I started to read more about it more about it and learned after a while that you know it's
0: not about getting high it's about education
2: Mhm. Mhm.
0: And uh yesterday yesterday I asked you how did you learn about ayahuasca? And well, I w- I won't spoil it, but go ahead and tell that that story.
1: Well, the first time I learned about ayahuasca it's not really a good story.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that's fine.
1: But you know, I had a couple of very intelligent friends and uh... We decided to try to synthesize DMT.
0: Synthesize, like uh, extract or no, synthesize. synthesize? Okay. Yeah.
1: And uh, my more intelligent friend was successful to a point. So the very first time I tried something like ayahuasca was uh, in a capsule. Mm-hmm. Uh, pure DMT and pure MAOI. It was the craziest thing I'd ever done.
0: How long did that last?
1: When I walked into the forest, it was just about dawn. And when I left, it was after dark. Mm-hmm. That's the best I know about it. hmm none of us really knew what was gonna happen, so we went to the forest and sat down at the base of a tree and kind of took a piece of rope and tied it around the tree and around my waist. Because I had done some weird things tripping before about this time and I didn't want to run off into craziness. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what was going to happen really or anything like that. So we had these capsules and watched the sun come up and started to get really high. And then the rest of the day was quite an experience. And then we left sometime after dark. Mm -hmm.
0: That was the first close to ayahuasca experience I've had. Mm -hmm. Um, And how did that method compare to smoking DMT in terms of intensity or uh, insight? Smoking DMT takes
1: too long to figure out what you've learned. Too too long to figure out what happened. Like like we were talking before, it comes so fast. Yeah. And it's so quick and then it's over so quick that while you're there you've got really no time to walk around to get comfortable and understand what's going on. hmm So if you have a couple of sessions smoking, it might take three, four or five months for you to realize everything you saw during that time. Mhm. Mm. Mm-hmm. And with the addition of the MAOI, it, 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 whether it's eating or smoking, it seems to slow the process down enough that you can understand it.
0: Mm -hmm. And just a note about pharmacology for those who may not know. Um, so DMT is broken down in the body by an enzyme called monoamine oxidase. And, um, it's just an it's just an enzyme that everyone has, and everyone actually has DMT as well, produced in their pineal gland. It's an endogenous uh, chemical, and um, so when you smoke DMT, you you flood your synapses, perhaps, or it goes into your body, and it's rapidly broken down by monoamine oxidase (MAO), and um, so your experience lasts maybe five to ten minutes. And an MAOI is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, which then inhibits that enzyme and allows the DMT to remain in your body for a longer amount of time. And a note about MAOI, um, people should be
1: rather careful using it. Right. It it reacts quite badly with someone who's on um, SSRIs Mm -hmm. and um, several other medications, uh, Parkinson's medication, things like that. Yeah um, it does have some severe counterindications with some medications. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And, um, for that reason, it's not recommended that people who are on SSRIs to drink ayahuasca. It's one of the things that, uh, you can't, you can't do that because not it's, at all. it's dangerous. And it's not like you could just stop using
1: the SSRI today and the next week go and try some ayahuasca. You, depending on the SSRI, it could be up to a year before everything's metabolized out of your system. Wow. That's good to know. I didn't know that either. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of these medicines, um, as they're so-called now, are not really as advertised. Mm -hmm. So it's like with uh, Iboga. Certain medications taken while under the influence of a boga just before or just after it could kill you. Hmm. Uh benzodiazepines. And we had a in southern Thailand there was some people treating others with a boga and they they had a very shallow understanding of the chemicals and everything and, and the counterindications. And <coughs> I had a gentleman come up from uh, Australia, I think it was, uh to do an addiction treatment and then He'd been having problems with amphetamines for years.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, when they started the aboga flood with this guy, uh, apparently a few hours in, he had started to kind of act out, and he was a big bodybuilder type of guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so these guys got the the, the treatment. People got kind of scared, so they fed him a couple of Valium.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: 45 minutes later, he was dead. Mm-hmm. Wow. And. so just because something is natural doesn't mean it's good mm-hmm. and people should always remember that you know natural doesn't always mean good it's perfectly natural for a bear to eat your face off
0: mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> uh was that you who uh, what was that that story where somebody got their face oh eaten with up? the monkey yeah Ooh.
1: Don't ever smile at monkeys and show your teeth. They, they see it as an act of aggression. And She was a cute little girl at this little tourist place in southern Thailand. Everybody keeps telling her, you know, that's not the monkey you should play with. Don't touch that monkey. Leave that monkey alone. He's an angry retired coconut monkey. She wouldn't listen. Kept putting her face in his face. Gave him a big smile with her face in his face. And he bit from her jawline was where his bottom jaw and his bottom canine went and up just about to her hairline. And when he bit down, he ripped almost half her face right
0: off. Yeah. Jeez. It was terrible. Yeah. It was horrible, man. Monkeys are incredibly vicious, especially what, what's that kind of monkey called? That was a macaque. Macaque. Right. They have a funny name. (laughs) Yeah, they do. But those monkeys in particular are, they're not nice monkeys.
1: Um, other than spider monkeys, man, I have no use for monkeys. I don't like them. I don't want to be around them. They're just... They're like angry children that are way
0: too strong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're incredibly strong. They're not really that big, but yeah, and they don't hold back. Uh, I got a a good monkey story, my introduction to macaque monkeys or any monkeys of any kind. I went to the monkey forest in Bali, and um, there's... An old temple there that was reclaimed by the jungle um, for some amount of time, um, and the monkeys moved in, and so it was the monkey temple. And eventually, someone decided, "Oh, hey, there's this cool monkey temple. Let's uh, try and clear it out a little bit, open it up to tourists." So uh, tourists walk through there, and it's a pretty cool place. But there's a guy out front selling bananas. And, uh, you know, everything in Bali is pretty cheap and, uh, me being naive and knowing nothing about macaque monkeys, uh, you know, I'm like, Oh, buy some bananas to feed to the monkeys. That sounds like a good idea. So I, I've got my large hand of bananas and I'm walking into the forest and the monkeys see me and they start coming for me fast. And, I I'm thinking in my head that the monkeys are going to come like, like dogs or something and like (laughs) sit, sit at my feet and like, I'm going to feed them. And, uh, so I, I put, I, I hand out a banana and a monkey comes up and snatches it. And, uh, they're all coming and, and they're aggressive and, and they're not waiting for me. They're about to jump on me. So I'm, I'm chucking bananas left and right and they're going after them. And, uh, there's too many to actually, uh, continue with that method. So I just chucked the whole hand of bananas and they're fighting over it. <laughs> and so, and right at this time, um, and I, I had heard that, you know, give the monkeys some space. I'd heard that much at least like, yeah, don't smile at them, things like that. Um, if they warn that, if they warn you, give them space cause they will attack you. Right. Uh, and they'll bite you. So I had just thrown the whole hand of bananas and a monkey, jumped onto my shoulder from the tree behind me, which was a good 10 feet, jumped right on my shoulder. And I kind of, I'm like leaning away from it. I'm like, please don't bite me in the face. I didn't quite know what to do. Uh, the monkey looks down at my chest and it sees a necklace that I'm wearing, like a big piece of rose quartz. And his eyes get big and he goes for it. He, he reaches down, he grabs onto my necklace and he jumps off of my shoulder and he swings He plants both of his feet on my chest and he yanks as hard as he can to try to, he's trying to steal my necklace. Luckily it held and, uh, I punched him in the face. (laughs) (laughs) I immediately felt bad about it, but it was just what needed to happen in the moment. I punched him and he let go and he ran away. And, uh, yeah, that was my introduction to what macaque monkeys are like. Monkey, a dog, whatever
1: never be ashamed about punching a mugger in a face. In yeah. The face. <laughs>
0: right. There's, there's a few times where, uh, that, that instinct has come out and, uh, yeah, sometimes it's necessary. I felt bad afterward, but I'm glad I punched him because he was trying to take my shit. Yeah. It was a bad monkey. So <laughs> the rest of that time I, uh, kept my distance and there's macaque monkeys in Hong Kong. I visited too. And, uh, yeah, definitely bested.
1: I'm fully convinced that if other than an orangutan mm-hmm. or sh- little spider monkeys, mm-hmm. that all monkeys are bad monkeys.
0: Yeah, well, even orangutans, right? No, it's, it's chimpanzees. Yeah. Those are the ones that are pretty yeah. vicious, yeah. right? Orangutans, the old man of the forest, and they're they're super cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't really seen uh, too many monkeys, um, you know, obviously in zoos, but it's kind of sad
1: i got a friend who works in uh, Borneo rescuing uh, orangutan from the, when they're burning the forest down or doing the palm plantations and stuff like that. And uh, According to him, even the most wild ones are extremely nice and reasonable and gentle. And, and like when they go into the forest to rescue them, sometimes they'll just run up and pretty much be like, hey, you're here to help me. Thank you. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. They have an intelligence that they can understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So you've traveled quite extensively. I mean, you, you're originally from the United States born yeah. in Hawaii yeah. and uh, now you live in Thailand, but you've got all kinds of stories from all over the place. And I just met you yesterday. We hung out all day with some other friends yeah. and, uh, Well, one story I'd like to hear more about is you did a 22-day journey with the the Weechel. And um, so, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about who are the Weechel. I'll
1: I'll tell you how it started. I'll I'll just start at the beginning. Okay. So, you know, I'm a teenager out doing the teenager thing and having fun. And I I was in Southern Texas and... I'd been drinking a lot, and I realized how much things cheaper, how much cheaper things were across the border. So, I went across the border, and I'd only planned to go across the border for an evening and just do a little bit of drinking and come back. And it was about a week later. <laughs> I woke up in the desert. I was woke up by this old guy that had come walking by, and, uh... I was really 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 hung over. I pretty much felt like baked over death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Being hung over in the desert is one of the worst things ever. Oh, I was passed out face down in the arroyo, you know, and like nothing good was coming of what I had going on at that point in time. And uh this old man that comes walking by and he wakes me up and asks me if I'm okay, he gives me a drink of water and he, he he could see that I'm not in a very good place. Mhm. He's like, well, why don't you come walk with us? And I'm like, who's us? And I sit up and look around and there's, there's a bunch of Indians walking by. I'm like, okay, sure, what are we doing? And he said, well, we're, we're gonna feed you a little bit and just, just we're gonna walk for a while and we're, we're doing our, our, our uh, pilgrimage. And at this point I can only understand about half of what he's saying.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I was like, okay, sure. I got nothing better to do. I don't even really know where I am at. I don't know what country I'm in. I just know that I'm really hungover and it's really hot out and this guy gave me water. Mm-hmm. So we go walking. And after a while, you know, it was a few days. We get to this place and we're like, "Oh well, we're here to pick peyote. This <laughs> just blew my mind I'm like really I've been reading about peyote for years it's like you just woke me up the other day and you're like hey come pick peyote with us and I was like okay so hang out with them and we're there for I don't know five or six days or something in the fields just, just picking peyote and they're explaining to me all the, the traditions they have and all this other stuff and I was really taken aback you know because uh, I had always uh, been explained that peyote was a dangerous drug and that it'll make you it go crazy. And I, at this point in time in my life, I had no idea that there was entire cultures based around this, mm-hmm. this as a, as a sacrament, as it were, to get closer to nature and their spirituality. Mm-hmm. And so about the time that we ended up leaving the grounds, I believe, because, I mean, when they picked me up, we weren't very far away, and, and I'm sure there had probably been some people already there for a while. We left and start the journey back to wherever they go to, wherever their villages are now. Big, huge whisker, wicker baskets completely full of peyote buttons. And, you know, my idea was, okay, these guys picked all these peyote buttons, and now they're going to go sell them and make a bunch of money, and I kind of I, I understand, you know, their their spiritual thing, but it felt kind of wrong because I thought that they were just picking all these to go sell them and that's when I realized on the walk back about a day and a half later that they weren't selling any of these they had picked I want to say 20 or 30 huge wicker baskets completely full of buttons Mm -hmm. and that was only to eat not just that point in time of the year but you know they take about two-thirds of what was picked they take back to the village so they have something all year long because apparently the peyote grounds is where they're originally from, but they've been de- placed, displaced by originally the Spaniards and now the, the Mexican government so they can't live in that area. So now it's uh, I think it's a 600-kilometer journey mm-hmm. from where the villages are now to the sacred peyote grounds and then back mm-hmm. the same amount. And it was just mind blowing to me because where I was told this was a horrible drug and it's terrible and it, it, it's, it's, it's basically the worst thing you can ever do. You know, the, uh, reading all the stuff of the peyote cult as it was and all this stuff that, that wasn't what I seen at all. I just seen a group of villagers getting closer to nature and themselves and each other. And it applied to everybody from the five-year-old children to the 90-year-old grandmother. Mm -hmm. And you you watch the Vice documentary about him. Yeah. And you you hear the old lady talk about, you know, or the old man talk about. He's asked, me, you know, why do you feed this to your children? Isn't this a drug? Aren't you giving your children drugs? And he says, you know, I'd be a bad parent if I didn't show my children what the whole world looks like. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And just this type of perspective on these things, was, is on this trip especially, was what really broke open my understanding of these aren't bad things. Mm-hmm. We're just told they're bad.
0: Right. Yeah, that was a big shift for me too when I learned that um, Native peoples have been using mushrooms, peyote, San Pedro, where all, all kinds of plants um, as sacraments. And not as, you know, recreational drugs and that they would, n- in fact, never do that. It's disrespectful.
1: That's what I, because I finally did ask him like, how much of this are you guys going to sell? And when I when I asked the the grandma this, she got this horrified look on her face. Mm-hmm. And it, basically her answer was, how can you sell God? Mm. I mean, if you have a phone and you can pick up and talk to God, how are you going to sell it? Why don't you just give it to anybody who needs to talk to him?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
1: yeah, they kind of kind of broke my brain open quite a bit. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I get to be hard-headed sometimes.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so did you get to eat peyote with them? Oh, yeah, I ate the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, for,
1: yeah, over 20 days. Yeah. The whole time. And it was, it's not like what most people think, just sitting there. And the uh, average Western idea of going and eating peyote, which is you're just smashing handfuls into your face the whole time. No, it's... <coughs> nothing like that yeah. a couple of buttons here and there you know mm-hmm. it, it, it's kind of like the proper way of eating mushrooms you mm-hmm. don't just start out and eat a whole bag of mushrooms you just eat them one or two at a time until you get to the spot where you need to be mm-hmm. and it was it's the same with peyote mm-hmm. and after you get to the spot where you need to be where you're gonna learn you just the only reason to eat anymore is to maintain being there
0: yeah okay so you're your consciousness is altered uh, but you're not like tripping face that's well and, and peyote gives you energy right oh for, yeah. for for hiking and all of that so it's not that it gives you energy it just it, it was
1: from my experience anyway you just have less of a you notice the physical requirements of what you're doing less mm-hmm. so if you're walking you know you don't really notice the Oh, I'm a little bit sore or my foot hurts or things like that. You don't as readily notice it as you would if you were
0: completely sober. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I've never personally done peyote. I've done some some San Pedro tea before and eaten the flesh before. And yeah, it just kind of gives a lightness, um, a lightness to the body, lightness to the mind. Um, uh, The hard to describe but the the fixation tendency of the mind that at least i have a fixated mind to just you know it kind of dissipates that or smooths that over so that it enables me to be more in a flow state yeah beauty is a it, it's a bit different than the uh
1: than san pedro for sure um, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, there's a total of around 40 different alkaloids in a, in, a, in peyote, mm-hmm. not just mescaline. Mm-hmm. And uh, with San Pedro, I mean, it's predominantly mescaline. Mm-hmm. So uh, the body load's a bit different. Uh, the period of time of the effect of mescaline inside the cactus is a bit longer. And... Personally, I like uh, peyote the most because I don't like San Pedro snot. Uh huh. <laughs> you know I mean, cactus juice is kind of a lot like snot.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is. It's kind of like uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle ooze. It's <laughs> similar consistency in color. My favorite, though, would be my favorite of all alkaloids, probably, would be pure mescaline. Mm hmm. Synthesized.
1: Uh, Extracted it's way easier than trying to synthesize anything.
0: Okay. So uh, you can do that. You can just separate the pure mescaline out from all the other alkaloids from San Pedro or something yeah. like that?
1: Well, you can separate it out <clears throat>
0: into a general solution and then you're
1: going to need to run it through like a column chromatograph to separate each individual chemical. But I mean... For anybody that's really interested in that stuff, that should be like first year chemistry class in any O-Chem class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, why is that your favorite? What's, uh, what is that experience like?
1: Um, a lot of the alkaloids will, of any kind will make me even more introverted than I already am. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, pure masculine, especially on the way back down, I feel rather social and I can interact with people a lot more readily Mm -hmm. than I would under a different influence or even sober these days.
0: Mm -hmm. Hmm. And then what about, um, what about the peak experience of it?
1: I've never had it come on like too strong or too fast. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll eat a bunch of LSD and you'll hit the peak and that shit's just so fucking crazy. You can't understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. The mescaline's never been like that for me. It's, uh, when I hit the peak, I mean, yeah, of course I'm extremely high. Mm -hmm. But it's a type of world that I feel more comfortable in.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to have more experiences with mescaline. Um, I've I've had most of my experiences with psilocybin and ayahuasca. But I've had an experience, especially with psilocybin, where somehow I feel more myself uh, in the psilocybin experience than in regular sober reality. Like it, I feel expanded into uh, a sphere of my own self that I that I am uh, not normally in touch with. Um, would you, could you say the same thing about mescaline? It yeah. It sounds I, similar to what I you're hear a lot about. of
1: people describe it the same way under this influence or that influence. I feel more myself mm-hmm. and yeah, I could say the same with mescaline for sure.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Or even, even smaller doses of LSD.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm, uh, I'm excited that there's peyote in, uh, Thailand, which is unexpected in kind of unusual uh, so it's really weird because that's the entire reason why I ended up
1: staying you know i had been traveling out here and I was like oh peyote's legal here so I can have a choice of going back to the U.S. and growing cannabis or staying here and growing everything else that I've always wanted to grow in peyote too mm-hmm. yeah I'll stay here
0: yeah yeah <laughs> and um well, we were talking about how I mean there's so many cactus aficionados and hobbyists out here in Thailand, but of course um, cactus is not native to Thailand. it only comes from North and South America. all cactus in the world, right awesome. it's, it's um
1: ninety seven percent of all cactus come from Mexico proper yeah right I mean when you you see the um uh, the cactus temples and everything down in Peru. And what most people never realize is all those cactuses that are used down in Peru didn't originally come from there. Mm-hmm. They were walked from Central America into South America over hundreds of years. Wow. By mm-hmm. people that would just take them with them on their journey south.
0: Mm-hmm. And cacti are so um, resilient. Um you know, this is not the greatest story, but, um, I had a cutting of a San Pedro that I had out of the ground for way too long. You know, uh, I should have planted it or should have done something with it, but I was, uh, I was mobile at that time. I had all my stuff in my truck and I didn't have, I was looking for a place to put this cactus. I didn't have a home myself, so I was looking for a good place. And, uh, I ended up having this cactus cutting out of the ground for a full year and it still stayed green. And, um, I didn't, you know, I couldn't water it or I didn't water it. And it ended up, uh, dropping roots out of its, uh, aerials. Is that the, or the little, um, what's the proper term for the little cactus pores and the aerials. aerials? Yeah. It was looking for dirt and, um, eventually after a year you know the, the the place where uh it was cut ends up scabbing over um and then i finally put it in the ground after an entire year and of being in you know hot car and and all of this and uh it rooted right down and started throwing out pups and it was totally fine they're
1: extremely hardy plants yeah and and it's like the uh the peyote that i grow Normally, I only water them twice a year. Mm-hmm. And then my greenhouses, you know, it's about 90 to 100 Fahrenheit every day. Mm-hmm. They still only get watered twice a year.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And they like that, right? Yeah. yeah. They grow full sun, mm-hmm. no shade or anything like that. and They love it. Mm-hmm. And you can actually uh, overwater cactus.
1: Oh, yeah. If you water peyote too much, it'll rot from the inside and die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, San Pedro is a little more... Resilient when it comes to water, and but I still haven't seen any uh, of the San Pedro line
0: live through a monsoon here outdoors. Yeah, I imagine. I'm a little bit concerned about my cacti. They seem to be doing fine um, for now, but I live in Northern California. It's, I think it's a little bit too wet, a little bit too cold where I am. Uh I transplanted them from Santa Cruz. They were in Santa Cruz for three years, and um they they were thriving there and uh yeah, my friend said that I needed to come get them so I put them in my yard and it, there's a frost in the winter where I am, and uh I could tell they were definitely not not happy with that, but well, they were li- up the Oregon border on the coast, huh. What's that? You're
1: up by the Oregon border on the coast, huh?
0: I'm not quite that high. I'm about an hour north of San Francisco okay. in uh, Sonoma County wine country, and closer to the coast though, so it's um, yeah, it's a little bit cooler there, uh, and it, it probably it gets, yeah, it gets a frost a few times. It doesn't really get much colder than that, but I mean, it's really just.
1: Uh, the rain that's an issue I mean, if you take them mm-hmm. inland a little bit to where the climate changes and even put them in the mountain it should be fine I mean you go down to I mean Peru's cold yeah
2: mm-hmm. yeah
1: and uh, they do just fine down there always have
2: okay I that's think good
1: the the the, the, the they're not from the desert proper like everyone thinks they're not like uh, the saguaro or something like that that grows in Arizona out in the harsh desert all the time they they Tend to grow at elevation in some places where they get some rain and some
0: frost. hmm Yeah, but they are quite resilient. That uh, they can live in many different kinds of environments other than that which they originally came from, and uh, still survive and, and grow. And yeah, then um, the new growth on them is a pretty good color. It's dark, so. I I've take that as a good sign. they have had
1: some trouble with a couple of types here because they don't like the humidity here at all. Yeah. Some of them don't. Uh, the, the Bridges EI, they hate humidity. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of those. I've got a couple of crosses that I got out of Spain, and they like the humidity better, but the the Pure Strain Bridges EI, they just hate it here so much.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, they probably do better up here in Chiang Mai, but down in the south, it's... 80, 90% humidity every day.
0: Yeah. Definitely not ideal cac- cactus environment.
1: Uh, it's
0: pretty good for the peyote. Yeah. Uh, so something else you talked about yesterday, which was really interesting to me, was that you, you're you making a tea with the leaves of the ayahuasca plant. Yeah. Uh, Banisteropsis copy. Isn't yep. that right? Yeah. So I've never heard of this before, Perhaps it's being done. You know, I'm not an expert in, in uh, the field or ayahuasca or ethnobotany. But, um, you know, it's the the vine that's used, uh, crushed up and uh, made in, into the ayahuasca brew. And people don't usually use the leaves, or at least I haven't heard of it before. And um, so how did you... Did, did you just discover that you could make a teeth just through your own experimentation or how did you come across that?
1: It, it came across to uh, through a discussion with several others in, uh, and in gardening groups and things like that. And, um, just a couple of insightful thoughts that I had. Um, so I was reading a paper and they cited in the paper, um, that the root mass is normally the st- has the strongest uh, MAOI concentration. And uh, the leaf mass in the stem will be almost equal. Sometimes the leaf mass has a higher concentration of MAOI.
2: Hmm.
1: And my friends ask me, well, if it's like that really, then how come in the, in the Amazon they cut down the vine? And I'm, i think about it. When you're in the Amazon and you've got this vine that's climbing a tree... 60 70 80 foot up into the canopy is where the leaves are gonna be mm, mm-hmm. You're not gonna you live in the Amazon. You're not gonna climb that much up into the tree That's far too high of a risk.
2: hmm
1: It's far easier to just cut the vine at the base and use what you can there mm-hmm. So uh, and i truly believe that's why there's very little indigenous usage of the leaves I'm gonna have to read in the papers and everything. I keep wondering, you know Why don't people use the leaves especially now since? We're getting all the reports from the Amazon of how much copy has been taken out, how much is missing, how much. And uh, Friends of mine down there are estimating that there's only going to be four or five more years left hmm. worth of copy vine for treatment centers and things like that before it's become completely over harvested.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and so when you look through the papers, like the stuff that come out of the University of Madrid and all that, and and they did the phytochemical analysis, you notice that in the leaves, there's just as much MAOI as there is in the stem. And with the amount of leaf mass that's put off by a cultivated vine in a year, there would never ever be any reason to harvest uh, the stem. Mm -hmm. And there would really be never any reason to harvest anything directly from the Amazon. And I think the only thing that keeps people from stepping away from harvesting the old vines from the Amazon is just their inherent need to follow tradition mm-hmm. rather than innovation. Hmm. Interesting. So what I do is I take my vines and or my leaves and I harvest them like black tea. Mm-hmm. And you bruise the leaves up, you treat them kind of bad, you let them ferment for a couple of days and then you dry them and cure them.
0: Treat them bad meaning, you know, you, uh, you, you kind of mash up the leaves and you get, Get the cell walls broken down, yeah. things like that. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I've noticed that from the breaking them down and then the couple of days of fermentation, only a couple of days here because of the heat and humidity where I'm at. Uh, if In another part of the world, the fermentation might take a week or two. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've noticed that the tannin load disappears quite a bit, uh, just like it would in a black tea. Mm-hmm. So... After it's harvested and, and fermented and cured and everything, what I end up with is I end up with uh, these copy leaves that taste, look, and smell almost exactly like a black tea. Hmm. <coughs> and when you treat the chacruna leaves in the same manner, what you end up with is instead of ayahuasca, you end up with a really nice tea
0: that still has the same effect. Hmm. So, you can, so you you can. So you've made a tea with... Um, chakruna leaves and copy leaves, ayahuasca leaves and have had a psychedelic experience. Oh, I mean. absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Long lasting. I, it's about eight hours or so. Yeah. Okay. And um, have you uh, done an ay- ay- ayahuasca before with the the, with bark? the vine? With the vine? It, Yeah.
1: Yes, I have. And it tastes, it tastes horrible. It Yeah. And it's when a, it's cooked down, it's like, it's like, Cactus juice, it's like snot down the back of your throat that tastes even worse than cactus juice. And yeah, and it lingers. It's uh, it's sticky. So And after doing, uh, I guess they're calling it Pharma Waska now, you know, just the pure extracted chemicals. And then the, the tea version that I've done, I've noticed with those two there's far less of uh, purging. Mm-hmm. And while well, everybody generally associates purging with a physical reaction of your spirit trying to, you know, expel something from your body. Realistically and logically speaking, according to medical science, puking is your body reacting horribly to something, trying to expel a poison Mm -hmm. from your body. Mm -hmm. Well, these tannins that are in uh, what's known as a proper ayahuasca brew, these tannins are quite literally poison. They're called tannins for a reason. The most common use for these chemicals is to dye leather. Mm -hmm. And when you're drinking leather dye, you're gonna puke it's and I mean yeah you'll get all kinds of spiritual explanations of why you're puking but the medical explanation of why you're puking is because you poisoned yourself hmm. and so I think the, the, the better way forward is to remove the poison hmm. interesting and I have friends that with their ayahuasca brews they lessen the purge quite a bit just with clarification of
0: the solution using egg whites because hmm. the egg whites will pull out the tannins into them. Okay, I, I'm interested to research more about that, because um, I I don't know that much about it. I've heard that ayahuasca is non-toxic, um, but
2: you know, well,
1: I it, really a, a tannin's a tannin, and uh, you know it's 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 a classic chemical. And industrial-wise, they really only have one purpose.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Technically, they everyone will say it's non-toxic, but there has yet to be any long-term pharmacological effect studies from this yet. Mm-hmm. And when the, those papers do come out, because I know there are some being done now, then maybe I'll have a different, more information. Mm-hmm. But as it is now, and with my understanding, like
0: tannins are a bad thing. Yeah, sure. So um, how does the... How does the, um, just the leaf brew compare in terms of intensity or insight? Is it comparable, or is it kind of its own thing?
1: No, it's the same thing. Okay. It,
0: it really is just the same thing. Uh, the taste is different.
1: Uh, the thickness and the, the palatability of it is far different. hmm And so a lot of people is, will associate an ayahuasca experience with how unpalatable the uh, brew really is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the couple of people that I've shown this down at my place, uh, at the end, they're like, wow, I can't believe that it didn't taste
0: horrible. It was, wasn't terrible
1: and it was still the same. Like, mm-hmm. well, yeah. You know,
0: how long do you brew the leaves together? Uh, a couple hours, a couple hours. Yeah. A, not at boiling either. I don't sit there and cook the shit out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: 85 Celsius, 90 Celsius. Okay. What is that in Fahrenheit? Uh, 180. Tea making temperature, about 180. Sure.
0: Yeah. yeah. Green, 180 green tea temperature. Yeah, man. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, I'd never heard of that before. Uh, your mention of it yesterday. Well, it's like tea.
1: I mean, you want the, um, in a good cup of tea, you want the terpenes and the caffeine to come out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you don't really need to cook the shit out of it to destroy it to get that to happen. Yeah, and in fact, you don't want to. It'll make it bitter, and yeah. And uh, I really believe it's the same. Because ayahuasca is really just another type of version of tea. Mm-hmm.
0: And they refer to it as a tea in in some so know,
1: some areas. So to cook the shit out of it, like, it's commonly done, is overkill. Mm-hmm. And it's the way Starbucks makes coffee. Mm-hmm. Everyone thinks Starbucks coffee is
0: right, but it's bitter as shit because it's overcooked. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, so, what what are some other places that you have traveled to? The last few years, I've done a lot in Malaysia. Uh,
1: the jungles in Malaysia are just fantastic. Um, and do you 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 go looking for plants? Right? Oh yeah, yeah. And go looking for plants and uh, testing plants to see what
0: what they carry inside of them and any new plants of interest, really. Mm-hmm. And are you primarily looking for psychotropic plants? Or well, you said you have an interest in some kind of decorative ones that uh, that and you I like. I've always been partial to either the uh, psychotropic
1: plants or on the, uh, the, the obverse, really, uh, poisons. Uh, I cultivate a lot of poisonous plants as well. Mm-hmm what's uh what's the interest in the poisonous plants or what what well poison in small doses is medicine too mm-hmm. uh, you get bit by a cobra the anti is made from cobra venom so
2: mm-hmm.
1: the only way the only thing that can stop you from dying from a cobra bite is more
0: cobra venom mm-hmm. so that's why you like brugmancy it's a poison and uh psychotropic yeah oh, well all poisons are psychotropic to a certain
1: extent um if you ever speak to anybody that's had a, been bitten by a cobra, they'll explain to you
0: that yeah, it hurt a lot, but they were they were tripping, they were really high. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, I've never spoken to anybody who's been bitten by a cobra. Oh, hang out around here long enough, you'll you'll meet several. Yeah. <laughs> and you're saying you have a cobra that lives on your land? Yep. Like an eleven-foot cobra. Yep. Yeah. But yeah. but she's nice. She's nice. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, a cobra's a cobra. Yeah, yeah. You want to give it its its space. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't expect to walk up and pet a cobra. It's it's going to bite you. It's a cobra. <laughs> right. But it's nice in
0: the sense that it minds its own business and doesn't go after people.
1: Yeah, it doesn't come after me. It doesn't come after
0: my dogs. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty reasonable. Mm-hmm. So, but but you're not really interested in animal, uh, I don't know if they're still called alkaloids. Oh, yeah. Um Cause there's a lot out there You know um. I find a
1: I find a lot of them interesting But I really Plants and animals both I have a real Issue like With causing Permanent damage Just for An experience Or just to get high So When you milk the 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 Colorado River toad And stuff like that Yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean That can't be a pleasant experience Yeah And way they harvest have you seen the pictures of how cambo is harvested yeah I have and I mean that's that's unreasonable to me yeah and it's, it's just as unreasonable as like uh, and uh, granted there's lots of them right now but it will not always be this way uh, the harvesting of mimosa hostilis trees because no, almost nobody does a sustainable method of harvesting they just go and chop the tree down dig up the roots powder the root bark and sell it off mm-hmm and with the amount of plants that contain these substances and things like that, there's no reason to kill anything. Mm-hmm. And just like with the animals, there's no reason to torture them. Right. You know, 5-MeO that uh, you're getting out of the river toad and stuff like that comes from an, an innumerable amount of plants. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. just a small amount of knowledge and understanding, uh, people wouldn't have to torture a small animal to get the same thing they can from tree leaves.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe it is just that, that tradition that perpetuates it, that uh, before, you know, now we have modern methods where we can synthesize or extract these things in, in better ways, but well, people girl, have an attachment to uh, the traditional ways. My girl, was she came across a good story, and she was
1: reading it to me one day, and um, so there's this mother and their daughter, and they're in the kitchen, and they're making uh, dinner, and they're making a baked ham and every time mom goes and makes this baked ham she cuts a quarter inch off the end of the ham and just throws it away
2: mm mm-hmm.
1: and daughter you know she, she's finally getting old enough so she asked she's like mom why do you do that she says I don't know that's how my mom always cooked it I just do it because that's how my mom showed me to cook it and she's like well that's not really a good answer mom explain uh, call grandma and ask her so they called up the grandma and they asked her she's like you know uh, the granddaughter's talking she says you know mom cuts the quarter inch off the ham every time she goes to bake it and she said you know she learned that from you and it was kind of the tradition she learned from you and that's how you showed her how to cook and grandma says give the fun back to your mom gives the fun back to the mom she says what's wrong with you she says I always cut the quarter inch off of the ham because that was how big the pan was
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> now you're just following your tradition for no reason at all hmm hmm
0: yeah, I I think it, for me tradition is interesting. Obviously, there are there's a lot of harmful traditions that are continued in the world, but I think also there is some benefit to, to tradition. I myself I am continually looking for the balance within myself of um tradition and innovation. And I I think in some ways we can get carried away with uh, innovation too. And uh, there's some value to tradition, you know, like the expression, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, that there are some some values to tradition, but it's it's hard to know uh, what, you know, what are some of these ancient ways that still hold value? Maybe we've lost touch with the wisdom of it, uh, and maybe it's uh, meaningless and doesn't apply to the modern age.
1: Well, it's like Graham Hancock says, we're, you know, we're a culture. We have cultural amnesia. Mm-hmm. You know, We don't really remember much of our past. And if you look at humanity as a whole now, I mean, we don't have a memory that goes back more than 50 years, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, the state of the world today is exactly the same as the state of the world 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And because we have a 50-year memory the cycle just keeps repeating Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same with tradition Um, any tradition should be looked at as How it's applicable today and is it intelligent to keep following this tradition? How does it apply to my life? Mm -hmm. and if It doesn't apply now Even though it applied before when times were different then it should be dropped Mm -hmm.
0: Hmm. Yeah um, do you have a good example of that?
1: English tea traditions with how sugar is served or, uh, things like how salt is still revered. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it points in time in the past, you know, sugar was extreme, was worth more than gold, and just like at some points in time in the past, salt was worth more than gold. Mm-hmm. So they were revered in a much higher standard. Mm-hmm. And they should not be revered in such a high standard today as they're just common commodities. Right. So the superstitions that comes along with these things, you know, uh, the spilling the salt thing, you know, you spill the salt and you toss a little bit over your shoulder for good luck to keep the to keep the bad luck away. Mm -hmm. Well, spilling the salt was a bad luck thing to begin with. And you scoop all the salt back up, you put it back where it goes, and then you sacrifice a tiny amount so that the bad luck stops happening. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not something we'd really have to abide by today. Salt's cheaper than water today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is really messed up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, that's a whole nother rabbit hole water. But yeah, just the the general adherence to tradition without knowing why the tradition exists or how it applies today is lunacy, really.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. But, again, for, for myself, I mean, because I pretty much am comfortable abandoning all tradition. Earlier in my life, I, you know traditions have been impressed upon me right by my parents by my schooling by my culture by my society everything and I went through a period of time of just ab- abandoning all tradition everything that was impressed upon me and was like okay I need to find I need to find my own way I don't I don't know what I can trust you know the history I was taught is completely wrong almost everything I've been taught is completely wrong um, but in time, you know, I ended up... There are some things that came back, you know, some things that I was taught that I abandoned that uh, I reclaimed.
1: That's, that's really the reasonable way to do it, though. I mean, to follow tradition for tradition's sake is horrible. But when you're going through your period of self-discovery and everything, you find out what is right for you. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, personally... But it's so difficult. I mean, if if we had traditions that were beneficial... Uh, or, and we do have some, um, and, and there are some things that I, like, I, I just did a podcast with, uh, a British friend of mine and we were talking about the difference between the UK and the States. And she was saying that one of the, one of the good things that she sees in Americans is that we, we seem to have a natural confidence and that, um, we're, we're very good with our voice, like we can, we can speak our needs and speak up when needed, and that that's just something that they're not really taught in Britain. And she used the example of show and tell, how uh, in school we'll bring some item to show and tell the class and, and have that experience of being up in front of a group of people and, and, and speaking about it from a young age, mm-hmm. and that that kind of empowers a sense of will in us. And that's just something that they don't do culturally.
1: Yeah, I never thought of that. That's, that's I had never thought
0: of that either. I was like, wow, that is actually a beneficial tradition that uh, I never really considered. And um, yeah, I just kind of even took for granted. But for her to highlight, I was like, wow, okay. And um, yeah, then I thought about all the times that, uh, you know, I'm shy in class and don't raise my hand, but the teacher will call on me to encourage that forth. And uh, yeah,
1: sometimes it seems like the teacher's picking on you, but you're right. It's, yeah. it's just so they, they can teach you to, you know, stand up and be you.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and that is something that is part of us. Uh, part of American culture is in individualism to encourage individualism, uh, to encourage ambition and that kind of go getter attitude and of course there's a shadow side to that as well um but uh yeah it's just interesting i i am in a constant state of uh questioning my myself and um you yeah. know refining and trying trying to trying to figure out what are the parts of me that I wanna keep and, and what what do I want to continue to refine or change or shift.
1: Well in my estimation, I think this is something that on the darker side of that that traditional aspect there is that's the proper way to go about it is what you're doing, is to question yourself at all times. But to a lot of the extent with the individualism that we're taught we're all some people take it to the stage where they question everything else and they never
0: question themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's easier. It's, I think it's more difficult to question oneself. Absolutely. That's, and I questioned everything else before I questioned myself, you know, like, uh, it's, it's easier to find fault in others than I, in, in oneself. But I, it, it, it requires, um, yeah. Another level of responsibility to recognize that the evils in the world e- exist within us well, as individuals as well. We're all naturally just a bit narcissist, right? Yeah. And maybe especially us uh, Americans, perhaps. You know, I don't know. It's, it's Who that else?
1: guy's fault. though, if that guy or if that thing hadn't happened and never really is it. Why did I do this thing? You know? Yeah. And and, and really think that's what the spiritual growth thing is really all about. Instead of externalizing blame, it's internalizing understanding.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, there's, there's no shortcuts to that path and, uh, it's uncomfortable and it's not fun. Um, I was talking to another friend yesterday about like, what, what is it that keeps people on the path of self inquiry? Uh, you have to almost have some kind of obsession with it because, we live in a time where we can be so physically comfortable where we can have our physical needs met. You know, it's not that hard to survive and, uh, you know, just sit and consume Netflix movies all day long and, you know, <laughs> feed yourself and we can live a comfortable life physically. And many people choose to just do that. And, but to leave that comfort zone and, and question yourself and refine yourself. It's not, it's not the most common thing to do. Um, And, and what is it that makes people do that?
1: I have no idea. I mean, when I was younger, I was like, you know, all this will get better one day. Mm -hmm. It'll stop being so difficult one day. (laughs) And it's only gotten worse. (laughs) Yeah. Like 20 years in, and it's still like daily work on yeah i can't even think about trying to externalize it and find the problems of the world i'm still finding the problems of me right and dealing with those
0: yeah yeah we are all uh you know a, a masterpiece in work uh, you know we i i think of my own my own self as my my own magnum opus that you know it's a it's a sculpture that i'm you know, crafting and chipping away at my entire life. And, uh, hopefully by the end, I mean, I've, one thing I've learned too is to be satisfied with myself and the the piece of work that I'm refining at every step of the, of the way. Because when I was younger, I, I was in a rush. I had this idea that, um, I have all this stuff wrong with me, all these things that I don't like, all this, you know, the laundry list of things to change. And uh, the faster I can get through all of it, the better. That if I can get through all of it, that one day I'll be happy. Yeah, I did the same. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that's when I was uh, doing heroic doses of mushrooms and, and just pushing myself really as hard as I could and changing as fast and rapidly as I could. From about the age of 18 to 28 and kind of on my like 10 year reunion, I I looked back at my last 10 years and I recognized that I've, you know, I've made lifetimes of progress uh, that I really have grown a tremendous amount, but I didn't really enjoy any of it. I was working so hard and I, you know, I, I still was, I wasn't satisfied and, and, Mm -hmm. That's, that's the good thing, I think. Um,
1: and the thing that kind of always kept me on the path is the original reason why I wanted to grow is uh, mentally and all of this was I wasn't happy with who I was. Mm-hmm. And even today, I can still tell you I'm not still, still not happy with who I am. Mm-hmm. I'm just happy with the direction I'm going. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. if I ever get to the day when I'm happy with who I am, and I've got nothing left to live for, really. I mm. mean, I have no more me to build. Mm. And if there's no more me to build, there's no more reason to live. Mm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So instead of trying to be happy with myself, I try to understand and acknowledge my flaws. And none of us are happy with our flaws. We can say, oh, I'm happy with this flaw, or I'm happy with that flaw. But somewhere deep inside, you recognize it as a flaw. Mm-hmm. You're not gonna be happy about it. So I'm really blunt with myself about it. No. If I feel I need to change, that is because I am not happy with who I am. The best thing that I can hope for at this time is to be happy and comfortable with the direction that I'm traveling in. Mm
0: -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not quite sure where I am at with it. Like I, I want to, I want to be happy with who I am now, even, even as a flawed person because yeah, well, I had that experience that 10 year reunion, looking back at like, I think I'm going about this the wrong way, you know, like I don't want, I don't want to live my entire life refining myself, but never enjoying it. And actually, um, there was some, something that kind of, uh, flipped a switch for me and, um, it was just something I read about, I don't even know, it was like the eight stages of growth or something like that of like, you know, um, recognition of an issue, blah, blah, blah. You go through all the stages. And seven out of eight of the stages I recognized. But the last stage was celebration. And uh, to acknowledge to yourself that you've accomplished something. And, and just to take, take a moment to celebrate that, that victory that you went through the seven stages to earn. And I realized I never do that. Um, I'm I'm just like a a workaholic, and uh, you know I'm like, okay, that's done. What's next? Just immediately onto the next.
1: No, no, that's that's the trap. It really is. Yeah, Mm -hmm. you gotta. When you do something good, you have to recognize you did something good. Mm -hmm. Don't disparage yourself by not. Yeah. Just like when you do something bad, you got to recognize it for what it is. No excuses. Right. Like this was wrong. Yeah. Not because this or because that. And the same with being happy. Never excuse your happiness. Right. It's happiness. Be
0: happy. Right. Enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel, I, I certainly feel like I'm happier than I used to be, without a doubt. And, uh, but life, of course, has its twists and turns and waves, and I'm not happy all the time. and no, you shouldn't I'm be. I'm probably unhappy most of the time uh, if I'm really honest, but not deeply unhappy the way that I was.
1: This is the key, really. I mean, to be honest about being happy and to be honest about being sad or being honest about not being pleased about a current situation, this is what keeps us honest with ourselves. Mm. You know, if you try to tell yourself you're happy when you're really not or you try to force yourself, you're... You're just lying to yourself, and everything Mm. that comes from that, anything further that comes from that is going to be based on a lie. Right. And uh, it was like my my, uh, construction analogy yesterday, and if you're building a nice house, the nice house of your psyche, and at the very beginning you started on, based that construction on a lie, that means your whole foundation for everything you build after that is shaky, Mm -hmm. and it's going to crumble. Right. So, yeah, when you're happy, be happy, man. When you're sad, be sad. And when you're disappointed or feel you need to do more, be honest.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's very important. Um, And that that was a big shifting point for me to recognize I'm not happy most of the time. And actually, I'm okay with that because it's just the state. It's just the way it is. I mean, I can say, yeah, sure. I wish I want to be happy. I wish that I was happier more. But, um, to, in order to accomplish that, you know, it does require deeper honesty St- and just starting with that fact of like, I'm not, I'm not happy all the time. Well, That's even, okay.
1: even being happy all the time, I, I can't really see it as being, I mean, I've never met anyone that is actually happy all the time. Mm-hmm. I, I've met a few people that are happy more often than not genuinely. I met people who
0: pretend to be happy all the time. Oh Yeah. Well,
1: <laughs> the only people that I've met that are genuinely happy most of the time are well advanced in years, sixties, seventies, eighties. Yeah. And I don't even know why, but you know, they have, each of them have their own different reasons as to why they're predominantly happy. But if you ask them through the majority of their life, they weren't. Mm -hmm. And I think being happy all the time, just like with the way we live in the West and it's so easy breeds complacency. Mm -hmm. when you have nothing left to improve you're not going to try to do anything Mm -hmm. you're not going to strive anymore
0: yeah that's true i think i think it's important to you know we were talking a little earlier about joe rogan and how we both appreciate his perspective and um, one of the things he focuses on a lot is challenge and struggle and that it's important and um I was fortunate enough to study martial arts when I was a kid and um, I think that doing things that are hard is, is valuable. And um, yeah, if you are too comfortable and too complacent, it softens your edge. And um, we don't, we don't live in a world anymore where you need to have a sharp edge and people can still survive and get by. But I think, that it affects the inner, inner experience as well. I think that, you know, I want to have a reason to celebrate myself truly, not just like, Oh, uh, you know, I watched a good movie and I had a good meal. That's, I, I don't really celebrate that. Um, I don't get a deeper sense of accomplishment from, from just that kind of like surface level existence. I, I want to, I want to really push myself. I want to like this podcast even is uh, outside of my comfort zone. Oh yeah. I get you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, this is not something that I would just naturally do, but um, I'm doing it because I, I have things to say and I know a lot of people have, have things to say. I want to create a platform for it, but also because it's challenging for me and um, every time I do a good episode and put something out there that I feel good about, uh, I can celebrate that, and I, you know, I feel I feel better, I feel good about what I'm doing with my time in my life, and um, you know, I I had a period of a couple years, two years before starting this podcast where I just was like, what am I doing? You know, I'm not I'm not offering my greater self. I'm too comfortable. Uh, the things, and I was hesitating on the threshold of doing the things that really uh, I knew I was capable of or wanted to do just basically out of fear, Mm. you know, and, uh, you know, I'm not saying I'm all great for doing this podcast, but it took me, took me a couple years to kind of build the courage to do it. But I think it's important for, it was important for me. I think it's important for all of us to have something that we really truly feel proud about and um it's difficult to have a a true sense of satisfaction if um we know deep down that we're not doing our best yep yeah i can agree with that holy yeah and um and the tricky thing about it is no one can really help us like i think we all have to look within and and find the, that courage and strength uh, to not only push ourselves to do that but <clears throat> sometimes to push against the opinions uh, or judgments of our peers or our family or or uh, you know risks involved with financial security there's there's a lot of excuses that we can come up with endlessly to not do the thing that we know that we want to do or we're supposed to do. Well, for many
1: years, I've
0: always heard, especially from my girl, you know, I've, everyone's
1: kind of, you know, said to me, oh, well, you're really lucky, you know, because 20 years ago. I just, I, I made the decision on what I'm going to do mm-hmm. for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew then that that was the decision that needed to be made. And it's what I could do and what I'm going to do. I get a lot of people. Oh well, you're lucky because you know what you want to do, and you you're you can do it. And I say, no, I'm not lucky. See, you see it from the side that is really convenient to you. Where mm-hmm. I'm the one that's the lucky one. Making that choice is everyone has the same ability to make the same choice. Mm-hmm. It's just very few people do. Right. And the choice that I made, you know. It puts my freedom in jeopardy, my livelihood in jeopardy, because the things that I researched aren't generally accepted amongst the authorities of the world. Mm -hmm. So the choice that I made was one that was really not in my own best interest, Mm -hmm. but it was the thing that I could do and it was the thing I was interested in. So instead of doing like many, many, many people I've met Instead of sitting on the fence and wishing there was an easier decision or wishing someone else would make it for me or wishing that something else would come along, I made my decision and stuck by it. I mean, really, that's how I see it for everyone is by the time, you know, you're in your 20s, most people have a good idea what they really want to do. But very few people have made the decision to do that and
0: stick by it at all costs.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very challenging. It's probably one of the most challenging things.
1: Well, I would have to say that um, everyone's like, oh, well, you're lucky, but I'm not.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, you wor- You you worked hard for it. You no,
1: know, the decision I made, you know, it. W- when you're 17 and you make a, dec- a life decision like that and you have to stick by it, you know, that's what governs your life. That's how you live. And there's a lot of things that I didn't experience that I wanted to do and things like that. But like when I was 16, I had a, you know, ambitions to be a professional boxer and things like that. You know, that didn't go along with what I really wanted to do. So that fell off Mm -hmm. and many things and people in my life in the pursuit of what I'm interested in just fell off from my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's the far harder path to take is when you make a decision and decide to stick by it.
0: Yeah. Than to wait. Yeah. But um, as challenging as it is, uh, you know, I, I think being, being on the uh, hesitation side or being on the threshold of it and looking looking at all the risks, feeling the fear, the insecurity, you know, am I good enough? Can I, can I actually... If I go for it, am I going to actually be able to accomplish that or will I fail? All of, the, all of that fear, uh, it feels so imposing, but and and many people don't cross that threshold. But when you do, uh, you inevitably will fail. But if you continue, see, there's just there's nothing like that feeling of success and accomplishment and celebration from actually being aligned with what you really want to do and doing it and i think if if people could somehow feel that feeling even just an ounce of that feeling once then uh it helps to cross that fear threshold and i've you know i constantly find myself at that fear threshold and and there's many times a moment of like well, okay, I've been doing it, and I and I felt that feeling, but now somehow I'm back on the other side of that fear threshold. I have to cross it again, and have to build that courage up again. Well, we're taught in the uh, we're taught in the
1: West predominantly that failure is a bad thing, mm-hmm. and I completely disagree with that idea. Failure is uh is very informative. When you were a toddler, you didn't learn how to walk. You learned how to not fall down, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? and you failed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times before you ever started to be able to walk properly. Mm -hmm. Failure is the best teacher, Mm -hmm. as long as you have uh, the open-mindedness to really question why you failed and uh, own that that failure was yours, Mm -hmm. and then you'll learn how to not fail, Mm -hmm. and the fear and everything's that that's the natural thing, you know, I mean, it's, it's real, it's ever present in all of us and it's supernatural, mm-hmm. you know, but the, the real definition of courage or bravery isn't lack of fear, it's being scared shitless and still walking forward. Yeah, indeed.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Well, um, let's see. Is there anything else uh, you wanna cover? I think I'm running out of brain power. I need to eat some food. Yeah, I need to eat some food and smoke a cigarette. Cool. Well, this was a fascinating conversation, a continuation of the fascinating conversations we've had. Yeah. And uh, really nice to meet you. Um, How can people get in touch with you if they so desire? uh
1: email address is nanashi garden at gmx.com could you spell that out n a n a s h i g a r
0: d e n at g m x cool man i'm really glad that you're out here doing what you're doing uh cultivating these plants and uh i know you're working on some papers and and just really deepening your knowledge also a shameless plug right quick um, oh please um Share the
1: mm-hmm. the name is self-explanatory. <laughs>
0: is that your site?
1: Uh, no it's I'm um, just one of the people on the site um, one of the admins on the site. Oh, okay and what is it? Um, it's a group of ethnobotanical hobbyists and professionals and everything and we share the seeds. yeah uh, if you're really interested in learning how to grow these plants and take care of these plants, independent of any usage of these plants. Mm-hmm. This is only a forum for cultivation and sharing of
0: cultivation knowledge and genetic sourcing. Okay. Are there any other uh, of your favorite resources that you might want to tell people about?
1: Not really, not right now. Okay, very good. <laughs> this is the only one I really deal with personally now. Everything else is just offline.
0: Yeah, okay, very good. Well, yeah, thank you again, and uh, wish you the best of luck here in Thailand, and uh, hope to cross paths with you again someday, somewhere. I had mentioned during the episode that I'm not the biggest fan of Hamilton Morris. Now, I recorded this episode back in March, and since then, had the opportunity to listen to Hamilton speak on another podcast, and he kind of changed my opinion of him. He was... Very knowledgeable, well-spoken, and professional. And I found that he had a lot of really good things to say. So it seems that he's come a long way since his days of tromping through the Amazon in his skinny jeans. And uh, I recommend listening to him. So just wanted to add that here. Uh, Some of you may have noticed that the audio quality is a little bit less for the these two recent episodes in Hong Kong and in Thailand. That's because I had my travel set with me, which is very basic. It's just two handheld mics and a digital recorder. And uh, unfortunately, it makes more noise than usual. Uh, next week, I'm back in the studio with Jesse Klein. So we'll have better quality of audio And we talk about ayahuasca, and in particular, uh, some cautionary tales about ayahuasca and how it can easily be overdone. Um, Jesse is the partner of Sina Schellenberger, who was my guest from episode two. We talked about cacao and ayahuasca. And I met Jesse the day after that episode i went to one of cena's cacao ceremonies and uh, met him there and very soon we discovered that we had a lot in common both of us had had an experience of doing an ayahuasca deep dive of several ceremonies in a short span of time and then having somewhat of like a blowout experience or uh it's hard to describe but um it can feel like riding a high with ayahuasca, but there's, there's definitely a way to overdo it. It's something, like I mentioned, I myself have done. I've seen many other people do. So I invited him to come on the podcast and share his story and just to offer some people the other side uh, of, of ayahuasca. There's many sides to it, but I think in popular culture and the way that people speak about it it's only in this highway and and um, you know it's it's a full spectrum plant and there's there's definitely um some safer ways to go about it so we share that there um and you know I just want to take some time after this episode to just chat with you guys a little bit because why not and uh I want to tell you a little bit more about my trip to Asia. So, I traveled to Asia at the very end of February until almost the end of April, so full two months. And what I was, uh, this is the fourth time I've been to Asia. And I went there partially just for enjoyment and vacation, but also because I was researching the possibility of moving there. And so, While I traveled around, I was keeping my eye open for business opportunities that might be able to sustain my livelihood there. And also just checking out the local culture and local people and just seeing if it's a place that I could see myself actually living. Um, I've been considering moving to Asia for five years now. I just really take to the culture and the food really well. It's very comfortable for me. In Asia, for some reason, I feel more at home there than I do in the United States. And um, definitely part of the push for me actually going out there is the state of the United States right now and just how crazy shit is and how crazy people are. And not even on any particular side of the political spectrum, but pretty much all around. And, um, it was really refreshing to go out there and find that that just doesn't, that's just not happening there. I mean, people, there's a greater sense of peace, uh, from the individuals to the collective and people are just going about their lives. And, um, I don't know, it was just nice to not be around people who are ultra mega, mega triggered all the time and just freaking the fuck out. So I went, I started in Taiwan, I was in Taiwan for two weeks, then I went to Hong Kong for two weeks, where I recorded the fifth episode with Natalie Goni, last week's episode, and then I went to Northern Thailand, where I recorded this episode with Nanashi, and then went to Southern Thailand, uh, Cambodia, Singapore, and I finished in Bali. And I really, really loved Bali and Taiwan. Those are, and Hong Kong. I mean, I actually loved everywhere, to be honest. But of the places I could actually see myself realistically living, uh, I think Taiwan is really the top. And I talked a little bit about Taiwan in the Hong Kong episode. Uh, it's People there are just so nice, like impossibly nice. Um, one example I give is... Um, just if, if you are traveling in a foreign city and you ask for help, um, especially in a, a place where people don't necessarily speak English, um, a lot of times they'll just kind of like go on. And, and I think in the United States, especially if you ask people for help, depending on where you are, it, it can be harder to find people who are actually going to take the time. But in Taiwan, it's very common. People, people are super willing to help you. And um, they're just... I don't know. They're just sort of a a compassionate people and they're very soft and kind of have a childlike innocence to them. And, um, I would say it's a more feminine culture and yeah, people are just kinder and more yielding. Um, the food is really good. Uh, everything works like, I don't know. I'm so used to not getting cell service and just, I don't know, American services not being top-notch, Taiwanese services are top-notch. Uh, everything from subways to cell phones to um, personal service like food, food service and things like that, they're just on the ball. And um, it's also very affordable there too. You can get a nice full meal for $5 um, and like street food for even cheaper and it's all good quality. So it kind of won my heart, really. Um, I thought going over there that I might have more of an interest in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong definitely was great. But yeah, Taiwan really won me over. So I'm looking into realistically moving to Asia now. And um, there's a high probability that I'm going to go through with it. And uh, potentially as soon as the end of this year. And, um, my thought is before I really land somewhere, I'm going to do a little bit more travel, going to go over there. Uh, I'd really like to go to Bali. Bali is much a similar way. Very kind people, uh, cheap, good quality. Um, and there's also a cool thing going on in Bali with all of these internet on- entrepreneurs from all over the world, like thousands of them. And there's these workspaces, which are, they're kind of like internet cafes that serve food and drink and people have a membership there and they'll just go to this cafe to work on their whatever. So I want to go there cause I love Bali, but also it's a good place to find podcast uh, interviews or guests and just hear um, all kinds of things that people are doing and creating and, um, Yeah, there's just so much opportunity in this day and age to make your own thing. And the people that are drawn to Bali also have more of a spiritual tint or, um, yeah, more like eco-based or whatever, just forward thinking. And so, yeah, I just want to go hang out there, be there for a while, get to know people and see what kind of cool people I can come across and what kind of interviews I can scoop up. So, stay tuned for that. That's coming later. But until then, we have lots of good more stuff here. Um, I'm going to be bouncing around California and scooping up interviews here too. So, if you guys want to let me know how I'm doing, I'd love to hear about it. You can find me on Twitter at finchcanfly. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram, Chronicles of a Psychonaut. And that's it for now.